own children's sinner. Psalm 40 is what I'd like to read today. It's a psalm of David, and here's what he said in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Now you just think about that. That's how God has blessed you. You can't name them. You can't remember them. They're more than you can number. Our God is a good God. Amen? Then we come to verse 6. David said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd bless your word. And as I try to speak it on the outside, I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak it into our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of us who grew up attending church have a certain vocabulary that the rest of the world thinks is rather strange. We say phrases like, covered by the blood, coming to the throne of grace, filled with the Spirit, all of which sounds perfectly normal to us, right? But to the rest of the world who aren't believers or who haven't been to church, that's just crazy talk to them. In fact, I wonder sometimes when I preach a sermon on Sunday mornings, if someone were to come in off the streets who had never been to church before, knew nothing of the Bible or religion or Jesus Christ, just how much of my sermon they would understand? <laughs> Maybe not much. Even the name on the sides of our building, Kavanaugh Free Will Baptist Church, is enough to scare off many a lost soul who has no idea what a Baptist is, let alone a group of them with free wills. Well, I'm proud to be one. But today I want to deal with one of those strange terms that Christians often use in church circles. To be honest about it, it is a term that I grew up not only hearing, but also saying myself without thinking too much about it. However, in all of those years of maturity that I have had, I can tell you today that this has a rich and deep meaning that should have a great impact on our life. And it is the phrase, Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. In fact, say that with me, would you? Christ-likeness. The word itself doesn't actually occur in the Bible, but the idea of Christ's likeness is covered throughout the Bible. The Bible says that we are to be conformed 
to the very image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we should grow up in Christ in all things. The Bible teaches that we should put on the Lord Jesus Christ and be imitators of Him in everything. That's the admonition. That's, that's what it tells us, to imitate Jesus Christ. But, in reality, just what does that mean? Does that mean in order to be like Jesus, I'm going to have to wear long hair and grow a beard? Because if that's the case, <laughs> I ain't going to make it, man. The hair won't grow anywhere on my head. I do remember a phrase that Brother Raymond Chronister used to say, that the hair on your head has, has gone underground, and it comes out your ears and nose when you get old. But it, that's pretty gross, I know, so don't visualize that right now. You might get sick. What, what does it mean to be like Jesus? Does it mean that I need to trade in my suit for a robe and my shoes for sandals? Does it mean that I need to go down to the lake and, and get out on a wooden boat and preach to those on the shore? Or should I be casting out demons and performing miracles? Is that what Christ-likeness is? Well, not necessarily. In my opinion, Christ-likeness isn't primarily a matter of appearance as much as it is a matter of attitude. When Paul described the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, he gave us a list of the attitudes that Jesus Christ exhibits. He said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those nine characteristics or qualities which Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit are the nine central attitudes which Christ displayed when he lived on planet earth. And they are also the nine characteristics which the Holy Spirit wants to reproduce in your life and mine. There is a part of Christ's likeness that is in our attitude with these nine characteristics. But it actually goes even deeper than that. I read a quote this past week from Ruth Graham the wife of the famous evangelist Billy Graham. And she said something very profound. Here's what she said. There are degrees of saintliness, but the very term Christ-like, she said, is confusing. Like him in what way? His ability to cast out demons, his ability to heal, his ability to raise the dead, to cast out the money changers in the temple, his ability to teach... And then, quoting Psalm 40, she concluded, I think basically what is meant by this term, Christ-like, has to do with Jesus' attitude towards doing His Father's will. And then she quoted our text, Psalms 40. Lo, I come to do thy will, and I delight to do thy will. And churches, I thought about that. I thought, you know what? She is exactly right. The essence of Christ's likeness is found in his attitude towards doing his Father's will. Psalms 40 is a messianic psalm. And there I go throwing some of those church words around again. That simply means it contains a direct prophecy about Jesus Christ. 
There are three verses right in the middle of Psalms 40 that are quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. And the writer of Hebrews chapter 10 places these words in the mouth of Jesus Christ as though Jesus were speaking these words to his heavenly Father. So if we're going to be like Jesus, then we need to be saying these words as well to our heavenly Father. They contain the essence of what it means to be Christ-like. So are you ready to find out what it means to be Christ-like? Here it is, number one. Christ-likeness means we have ears that are open. Look at verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not require. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Notice that phrase right in the middle. My ears you have opened. An interesting little phrase. The word for opened literally means digged, like you dig something out, or bored, like you bore through something. In some translations, it uses the word pierced there. Some people think that it has to do with the Old Testament practice regarding slaves. Do you remember in the Old Testament, sometimes a slave, having been freed by his master, didn't want to go free? Perhaps they had been well-treated, maybe well-paid, had great living conditions and a good station in life. The slave could say to the master, I don't want to be set free. I want to become your permanent, lifelong slave. And if agreed upon by the master, the master would take the slave to the doorpost of his house, put his earlobe on the doorpost and drive an awl through his ear, signifying as a sign that this person had had their ear pierced and they were a willing, lifelong servant. Some people think that that is exactly what David had in mind here. They think David was saying, I want to be God's willing servant always. I want to have my ear pierced to prove that I am a lifelong servant of Jesus. In fact, I've even heard some teenagers use that. Anyway, you can just follow that little train of thought there. But, but there are some problems with that interpretation. You'll notice that the word ears is plural in our text. My ears, both of them, you had opened. So both ears have been bored. And that doesn't fit with the servant interpretation. Because a slave who became a willing servant for life had only one ear bored open or pierced. For that reason and other reasons, most interpreters find another meaning to this passage. The word is best translated opened. My ears you have opened. It reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah said. The sovereign Lord wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened, same word, opened my ears. Well, here's what I know about Jesus. His ears were opened to the voice of his heavenly Father. Jesus knew the Old Testament and Jesus loved his Bible. In fact, I read one time that a complete 10% of Jesus' daily ordinary conversation consisted of direct quotes taken from the Old Testament. He constantly quoted Scripture. Jesus loved the Word of God. 
his ears were opened to what God had to say to him. I know that about Jesus. But do I know it about myself? Could we say the same thing about us? My ears are open to whatever God is saying today. This past week, I, I read a story about a Yellowstone National Park ranger. It's, been, it's on my bucket list. I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to go to Yellowstone one of these days and, uh, and chase grizzly bears. So I, just go there. My, my granddad Whitmire used to always tell me, we're, we're going to go to Yellowstone, but we never did get to go. One of these days, I'm, I'm going to go to Yellowstone. Angie, we're going to take a road trip to Yellowstone, and you'll love it. I know, you'll love it. Anyway, this park ranger was leading a group of hikers to a fire lookout. The ranger was so intent telling the hikers about nature and about plant life and animal life that he switched off his two-way radio because he did not want to be disturbed by the static. As they neared the tower, they were met by a nearly breathless lookout who came running to them saying, Why haven't you answered our warning calls? We spotted a grizzly bear stalking this group, and we've been trying to reach you by radio to tell you of the danger. But they hadn't heard the warning because their radio had been switched off. I think that's a warning to us. Listen to me, church. Anytime we become so distracted that we turn off our communication with God, we're at the mercy not of a grizzly bear, but of a stalking devil who's seeking to devour us when you become too busy for daily bible study and prayer you've become altogether too busy and you're losing a key ingredient of christ likeness for god doesn't desire bird offerings he desires open ears number two christ likeness doesn't just mean ears that are open it means lives that are available. Look at verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I come. Underline that phrase, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. That reminds me of what Isaiah said when he said to the Lord, Here am I, Lord. Send me. When your ears are open to the voice of God and you hear the call of God on your life, the only proper response back to that call, is to lay your life before God and say, Lord, here I am. <laughs> Take me. Use me. Send me. Someone has said, God doesn't need our ability as much as he needs our availability. And I believe that's true. There are not really very many Christians who remain available to God. But those of us who do are the ones that God chooses and the ones that God uses. That's what Jesus had in mind when he said, If any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Reminds me of the old hymn where the hymnist imagined a conversation between himself and Christ when he wrote these words, Take up thy cross and follow me. I heard my master say, I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go.
Guys, can I tell you, that, that is what God is waiting to hear from you. Lord, my life is available. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whatever it is I can say for you, I'm ready, willing, and able to do it. Perhaps no missionary lived up to his name better than the one whose last name was Go Forth. It really was a real guy. His name was Jonathan Goforth. And it was said about Jonathan Goforth that he was China's most outstanding evangelist. Goforth became a powerful evangelist throughout Asia, which is rare for a Westerner. He, draw, he drew crowds sometimes that exceeded 25,000 people at one time to hear him preach the Word of God and evangelize. He opened up his home to inquirers. Those people who wanted to know about Jesus Christ and Christianity and the kingdom. They say one day, on one particular day, over 2,000 people showed up at his house to hear about Jesus Christ. Thousands of people in Asia were converted under his ministry. Over 50 converts answered God's call to be missionaries to other countries. What led Jonathan Goforth overseas? Well, he came to Christ at age 18, and shortly thereafter, after reading the memoirs of Robert Murray McShane, he told the Lord, Lord, whatever you want me to do in life, I'll do it. But it was Dr. George McKay, a veteran missionary to Taiwan, who drew Goforth to overseas work. McKay was a missionary to Taiwan. He came stateside to try and raise support and find young men who would go back to Asia with him to evangelize. And for two years, he went across our nation preaching at college campuses, inviting young men to follow him back to Taiwan. After two years, he had no volunteers. And in his last service in the United States, he said to the audience, I have been a failure. But Jonathan Goforth was in the audience a young college student himself. McKay didn't know it, but he wasn't a failure after all. Because that night, Jonathan Goforth said, I heard the voice of God speaking to me, asking, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And that night I said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. He looked back on that night and he said, From that very moment, I became a foreign missionary. His life was available to God. And I know you're kind of like me. You're sitting there thinking, oh, that's a great motivational story, but it has absolutely no application to me. <laughs> because God has not called me to be a foreign missionary. If that's what you're thinking, you're missing the point. It may not be a foreign missionary that God is calling you to, but I can guarantee you, if you're a Christian in this room, God is calling you to do something in his kingdom. His work is done through us. We are His hands. We are His feet. We are His mouth. It's interesting being a pastor and looking at things through my perspective. Sometimes we think, well, we see a guy out there that's really good looking or a really beautiful girl that's got everything. they got charisma, talent. Uh, maybe they got money. they got good looks. They, they can do anything, say anything. We think, man, God could really use that person. You know what? Usually those are not the kinds of people that God uses. You know why? Because they have their own plans, their own agendas. And sometimes they're, they're too involved with themselves. 
No, it's that person out there that may not be the best looking person, who may not have it all together and all figured out, but yet they are available to God, who are willing to say, yes, Lord, you can use me. Those are the people God uses. I mean, God can use anybody. Look at me. <laughs> listen to me. Guys, listen, this is no lie. When I was in high school, I could barely read. I hated school. I got afraid when I stood in front of people to speak. I had so many problems. You would never have wanted me as your pastor when I was 16, 17 years old. Big deal. God can use anybody. All you have to say is, Lord, I'm available. Did you know we have dozens and dozens of ministries right here at Kavanaugh Church? Our little church, 600 people. We have dozens and dozens of ministries that will enable you to use your hands and your feet, your voice and your mind for the kingdom of God. All you've got to do is say, I volunteer, Lord. My life is available. And let me tell you, that's what it means to be Christ-like. You have ears that are open, a life that is available, and number three, a heart that is yielded. Look at verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. These words, remember, were spoken by Jesus Christ to his Father in Hebrews chapter 10. The essence of Christ's likeness has to do with our attitude towards our Father's will. On the mountains of Galilee, Jesus prayed, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In Gethsemane, he prayed, Not my will be done, but thine be done. So for us to say to God, Lord, I delight to do your will, is a difficult thing. Let's be honest. It really is. It's a difficult thing for us to totally yield our heart to the Lord and say, Lord, I want your will for my life more than I want my will for my life. Because most of us in this room are trying to obtain our own desires and reach our own goals. Several years ago, a New York contractor who was short on cash forged a $2,000 check. He was arrested, convicted, and imprisoned in New York's infamous prison called the Tombs. Funny thing about it, he had built the Tombs. <laughs> it had been his dream project, his last big contract. And as he trudged through the gates of that prison, he said, I never dreamed when I built this prison that I would be an inmate one day. But here I am. He was in his own prison. Now, how many of us can relate to that? Hmm? I think many of us in this room have discovered that dreams can sometimes become our dungeons. The aspirations which motivated us in our 20s can imprison us in our 50s. That's not very good news, is it? Many of us reach a time in our life when we realize, as C.S. Lewis put it, that we may not be great after all. 
our high and holy hopes are unfulfilled. And there is this inner disappointment mixed with frustrating envy over those who are exhibiting greater success than we are. I've got some examples of this, people I know. A guy named Jim. He was named the chief loan officer of his bank. By most standards, he was successful. He was highly respected amongst his peers. But he had fallen short of his own dream. For he had always pictured himself as being the president of his hometown bank. You see, the dream that motivated him in his 20s now imprisoned him behind the bars of self-imposed failure in his 50s. Oh my. Or what about Joyce, a missionary? She had always imagined herself leading a mission school of over a thousand students. But after two terms of hard work, she was teaching a tiny class of less than 30. Oh, her work was of quality and her devotion was selfless. Lives were being changed. But a feeling of failure stalked her because her own dreams had not been actualized. They've got a term for this. It's called, it's called dream deflation. Dream deflation. It's a widely observed symptom among, and I don't like this term, those going through a midlife crisis. I turned 56 on Tuesday. I think I'm on the other side of the crisis. I, I sure hope I am, man. Doctors tell us that when our dreams crash into reality, they have to be readjusted and even sometimes downsized. For at the beginning of adulthood, many of us tend to overrate our capabilities and even our opportunities. I didn't really think there'd be too many amens, but maybe you can relate. Statistically, only 5% of us in this room will reach the top of our careers. And even then, many earlier dreams will still be beyond reach. For, for so many people, life can turn out to be such a great disappointment, leading to depression and despair. I'm just having a flashback when I was a kid in Midland watching Hee Haw. <laughs> Gloom, despair. Agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, agony on me. I haven't said that in a long time, but it's funny. I remember all the words to it. Guys, sometimes we look at life like that, don't we? We, have, we haven't reached our dreams, our goals, our aspirations. But. But. As the preacher G. Campbell Morgan used to say, life's disappointments can sometimes become God's divine appointments. You, you think about that. God's agenda for our lives is perfect. No, it, it may not include fame and fortune. But when we surrender our dreams for God's will, we discover plans that will prosper us, giving us a hope 
and a future. Let me tell you something, church. It can never be dream deflation when we surrender our goals to Jesus Christ and exchange them for His good, acceptable, and perfect will. That isn't the downsizing of our dreams. It is the uplifting of our destinies. Then you can say with David and David's greater son, Jesus, I delight to do your will. To do your will, oh my God, is my great desire. At every point in life, at every age, our lives should be living sacrifices. That's what it means to be Christ-like. So this morning, do you have ears that are open? Do you live a life that is available? And do you have a heart that is yielded? Are you growing up in the Lord Jesus Christ in every area of your life? A sculptor once fashioned a magnificent lion out of solid stone. Someone asked him one day, how did he accomplish such a wonderful masterpiece? To which he replied, oh, it was easy. I just chipped away everything that didn't look like a lion. (laughs) And can I tell you, that is my earnest prayer for you today. That God would begin this morning chipping away at everything in your life that doesn't look like Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father,